Hey everyone! Before we get into my chat with legendary songwriter and producer Desmond Child, I want to tell you about the wonderful world of Hot Dog Club, which you can join now by heading over to patreon.com slash craigandfriends. You have a few reward tiers to choose from, with the $5 option netting you the full-length bonus episodes, the $7 option getting you the bonus episodes plus all of the listener questions episodes, which time to time feature very special guests such as Bible Girl, Jasmine Masters, Alaska, Willem, John Grant, Jake Shears, the list goes on. But the $10 option is the best option, and why is that? Well, because you get all the bonus episodes, all the listener questions episodes, and you also get Movie Club. And the hot new Movie Club that's coming out shortly features Alaska Thunderfuck and I talking all things Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, a cult classic that was far ahead of its time. Once you do join Hot Dog Club, the almost painfully swollen archive, well, it's instantly unlocked, and you can dive into the Olympic-sized pool of content and get soaking wet with entertainment. By doing so, you help support this show. So essentially, only good comes from joining Hot Dog Club, which means that you should consider it your civic duty. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Friends. I had a song on Times Square. The night was not, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and right over there, I have your first two albums. Oh, I, cool. Yeah, I pull them out, but you yeah, know what they look I, like. I see the yellow. <laughs> I see the little yellow coming yeah. over there. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan of your music. Thank you. You're welcome. And Our Love is Insane is one of my favorites of your uh, solo stuff. I really wanted to go see you at uh, 54 Below at Feinstein's, but I wasn't in New York at that time. When I reached out to you, I was um, hoping that you were going to be in New York when I was, but you live in Nashville, right? I do. Mm-hmm. When did you move there? Well, we were living in Miami. I was going to Nashville to uh, write. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that instead of staying in a hotel, I had to stay in a log cabin. Mm-hmm. So first we rented one, mm-hmm. and then we built one. <laughs> and... Um, then that little cabin, it l- sort of looks like Cracker Barrel. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. My husband and I, we, we had moved to New York, and then we moved back to Nashville, and we moved into the shack. Okay. And it was like the Waltons. <laughs> I mean- Everyone we, calling out goodnight at the end of the show? Yeah. Pretty much. The boys slept in the loft over the kitchen, Yeah, and we had one bedroom. Okay. And so right before they went to high school, we decided to- add bedrooms. Mm-hmm. So we did that and added a pool and then we added a new master bedroom. And before we knew it, we were in debt again. But <laughs> and like now they're going to go off to college. So it was only good for like, <laughs> we should have just stayed at a hotel. Yeah. Right. And maybe like ha- <laughs> let them have the cabin. You go to the hotel or vice versa, you know, switch out on it weekends. It would have been way cheaper. Is your love insane or do you give love a bad name? Either way, on this episode of Whimsically Volatile, I am pleased and thrilled to present a singer, a songwriter, a one-time cult member, a father, a husband, and my guest, Mr. Desmond Child. Welcome, Desmond. Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to me. Yes. Yes. And welcome to Whimsically Volatile. I'm so glad um, we can make this work. Is this like Austin Powers' living room? Like, oh. what's with the shag rug and, like, furry pillows? Uh, yeah, another like, friend of mine started bringing up the Austin Powers thing. Yeah. It's very comfortable. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I like this color palette of the throw pillows. I'm trying mm-hmm. to work in more of that palette with the gray and black. It works. I thank, think it really thank works. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mauve, it's called. Mauve. Because mm-hmm. I was calling it Dusty Rose. There's a fine line. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> between mauve and dusty rose. Yeah, that's really true, isn't it? You have to be gay to know the difference. <laughs> and speaking of being gay, I wanted to ask you because I was learning more about your family history and about how your father thought that gay men didn't have enough testosterone to father a child. That's right. He thought we were eunuchs. He was a, a Hungarian with very th thick accent. And what, you can have babies? You know, he like thought I was crazy when I said we're, I was having a child and it was biologically mine and yeah. that they would have Hungarian blood. Mm -hmm. He was in shock. He thought we were infertile, <laughs> that all gay people are infertile. What was it like when they found out, or you told them rather, that you were gay? Well, my mother was happy about it because she was always a, you know, huge fag hag. Okay. I mean, we always had gay guys around the house. She even dated a gay guy. She was a songwriter, so she thought he could help her with her demos. Uh huh. So, <laughs> did it work out? Did the demos get better? He, she was his beard, in oh, other words. Sure, you know? sure. So everyone, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, she got great demos out of it. <laughs> um, but um, my dad, I, I think he was like he didn't show at all any kind of uh, un displeasure or oh, unhappiness. Good. But I know he was a bit homophobic, mm -hmm. you know, being Hungarian and all. But what was he going to do? I mean, mm -hmm. I was already 18 when I found out he was my father. So he took me under his wing and he put me through college and all of that. He really, you know, like gave me kind of like a lot of the love and attention that I never got as a child. So that was helpful, more than helpful. It mm -hmm. made me who I am. Sure. So he, he was always very accepting. Now, when you say that that's when you found out he was your father, could you explain that a little bit? My mom had left Cuba with an American geologist who had British parents. He was about 16 years older than her, and she was already thinking she was a spinster mm -hmm. at age 23, also because she was a bit tall mm -hmm. and uh, blonde, and she didn't look at all lat Latina. Mm -hmm. So he married her and took her to the jungles of Venezuela where she realized that she was very unhappy. Mm -hmm. She had no idea what she was stepping into. Sure. And she had to live with his mother, who was like a very strict British, you know, kind of like Maggie Smith. Sure. Who didn't like her and didn't speak Spanish, and it was terrible. Oof. So on Wednesdays, she would go to a matinee across this big lake called Maracaibo in Venezuela. She would go see an American movie. And she walked into the movie theater and it was completely empty. She sat down and then a man came behind her and from behind and then sat next to her mm -hmm. and just stared at her the whole time. And he was a very handsome, dashing uh, Hungarian uh, immigrant, <laughs> Yeah, uh, looked like Errol Flynn. Mm -hmm. That's when they started up. And uh, before she knew it, she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then she didn't come back. And he waited for her week after week, hoping she would come back and... She didn't, and then he went over to the other side, and they had moved away. Oh, yeah. So he went to Cuba, and from little things that she had said, uh, like clues, mm -hmm. he tracked down her sister mm -hmm. and um, started writing her letters, and her sister would put them inside her letters. Because so her sister knew that this was the real... Yeah, so they yeah. met in Miami Beach when I was six years old. Yeah. I met, I'm sorry, six months old. Uh -huh. And then he begged her to leave with him, and then... She went back to her husband, and she couldn't. She couldn't do it because she was afraid of what her family would think. Oh, really? Wow. So you know that kind of set the course of my life in a whole other direction. Yeah, sure. And what was uh, growing up like? 
It was bad because eventually she divorced that man and we went to live in Miami in poverty mm-hmm. and we lived in the projects of Liberty City. I don't know if you remember a movie called Moonlight. Sure. The one that uh, took the Oscar instead of La La Land. Yeah, when they got around to the right answer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And those projects was where I grew up. Yeah. And in fact, the apartment that they filmed it in was exactly like the one we lived in. Mm-hmm. Like exact. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of creepy and um, brought up a lot of memories that weren't, sure. weren't good. It was yeah. a very terrible time, but we lived there about 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I started going to um, local elementary school, and then I went to uh, Edison Junior High School, and it was very rough, mm-hmm. very rough. And there was no teaching happening there. Okay. The people were just like fighting, and the teachers were just like jailkeepers. Sure, yeah. So I lied about my address, and I started going to Nautilus Junior High School mm-hmm. on Miami Beach, where, where all the rich kids lived. Okay, yeah. So it took me three buses to get there every day, so wow. I had to leave super extra early, mm-hmm. and it took me forever to get home. But it made a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, one of my classmates was Mickey Rourke. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, he became my protector. That's a good one to have if you're going to have a protector, yeah. right? And so there was this bully, and he always used to say, I'm going to kick your ass after school. I'm going to kill you. One day, Mickey came up to him and just grabbed him by the shirt, and he went halfway up a wall. <laughs> and he said, you know, you ever come near him again, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick your ass and you'll never be able to come back to school again. And the guy started leaving me alone. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how cowardly bullies really are under the surface. I found out much later when I was in college that the poor guy during that period of time, his mother was dying of cancer. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he was taking it out on me. Right. And then I kind of forgave him a little bit. Sure. That's a good thing to have happen when you can realize that these people might be in pain too. Yeah, that was kind of uh, a tough time in my life. Luckily, during those days, the whole 60s exploded. Yeah. And all of my friends were going to rock concerts Mm -hmm. and overnight ones. Yeah. Like Woodstocky kind of Uh ones that they had in Florida. Uh Uh-huh. You'd go three days and (laughs) I got to see Janis Joplin and the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix burn a guitar. Yeah. You know, all of those things, I was there. I saw them. And that's what gave me kind of like that feeling like, gosh, you know, we're so poor. And probably who knows what I'd end up like a waiter or wait, you know, some cook or something Mm -hmm. like my uncles and aunts. And I just said, no, you know what? I'm going to be a rock star. Yeah. I think that's the better way to go. (laughs) Yeah. And I figured out how to do it. How did you start figuring out how to do that? When did you start playing music? Well, my mother was a songwriter, right. so there was always a song being written. Mm-hmm. I didn't know people didn't write songs. I thought that's yeah. the way human beings express themselves. Right. There'd always be a little piano, and we had a little Wolitzer piano that was terribly out of tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started writing my first songs on it. Then I met a girl on the lawn at Miami Beach High, and she was playing acoustic guitar, and she kind of had... Yoko and O'Hare and mm-hmm. little granny glasses and stuff. And I made friends with her and her name was Deborah Wallstein. Mm-hmm. Debbie Wall, that's what they called her. We just bonded and uh, we started writing songs together. We decided we, we'd be a duo. We loved the name Nightchild. Yeah. So then she became Virgil Knight and I became Desmond Child. Right. And your original name is? John Charles Barrett. 
that was the name of the American uh, mm-hmm. geologist. So I was named after him. Mm-hmm. So you changed your name to Desmond Child. Yes, because I wanted it to sound like Elton John. It's a great name. It's one of my favorite stage names. There's really no other Desmond that I know of in rock. No. Just like there's only one Elton, like you said. Right. I mean, there was Elton Motello, but that doesn't really count. He was like, he had a record, no. I think he had one album out or something. But it's funny, sometimes people come up to me and they say, my name's Desmond, my parents named me after you. It's like, what? I'm so sorry? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> So you formed, you formed Nightchild, and then and we we dropped out of eleventh grade mm-hmm. and drove all the way up to Montreal, then back through Boston. There was a a folk club called Sword and Stone, mm-hmm. and so we tried to play there and we didn't get picked. <laughs> so we drove down to Woodstock, New York, uh-huh. where there was a folk scene, oh, yeah. and this is the leftovers from the Woodstock Festival. Mm-hmm. Just like two years after, mm-hmm. but Dylan was there, the band was there, Van Morrison, mm-hmm. Todd Rundgren oh, was yeah. up at Bearsville mm-hmm. making an album called Something Anything, oh, right. and I befriended a, the head engineer there, Nick Jameson, mm-hmm. and he came from a group called the American Dream Machine, mm-hmm. and so he was very handsome, he had a beautiful girlfriend and everything, and he just you know thought we were cute, I mean, we were 17. Yeah. So he let me be like the coffee boy. Todd was never nice to me. And <laughs> I've, heard, uh, I've, heard, I've read many things that that was sort of his thing back then, right? Well, he was super mean. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he had like a sign on his door, like, do not enter and all yeah. this kind of stuff. But, you know, being me, I would go and stand in the airlock and be able to hear the music. Oh, yeah. And as soon as the music stopped, I'd run out and run to the right mm-hmm. down the hall. And then he'd come out and go to the left where the bathrooms and all that were. Okay. And so then he'd go back in. And then as soon as I heard the music again, I'd go and stand in the airlock. And I yeah. heard all those songs, wow. you know, that mm-hmm. really made such a deep influence on me. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he always just, you know, was mean, you know, mm-hmm. just like condescending, sarcastic. And his music was so soulful yeah. and the opposite of the way he behaved. Yeah, it's funny, the contrast there. So um, many years later, remember he produced Bad Out of Hell 1 mm. and then Jim Steinman took over and did Bad Out of Hell 2. Right. But Jim Steinman and Meatloaf had a falling out. So I stepped in and produced Bad Out of Hell 3. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, Meatloaf insisted on bringing Todd back because he had sung backgrounds on Bad Out of Hell too. Yeah. Because it was sort of his sound, right? Yeah, totally. And and I think Simon brought him in on Bonnie Tyler's record to uh, Holding Out for a Hero. Holding Out for yeah, a Hero, like that was he, Todd he was like, Yeah, the, the backgrounds were. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, they insisted on bringing Todd, but when he saw me, it was like, there's the coffee boy. Really? He still had oh that thing? Oh my God, he was so disrespectful. You've got to be kidding me. All this time terrible. later. Oh, oh, that's he, so disappointing. He was so mean to me. That's such a and shame. I was the producer, so now I had to oversee the the yeah. vocals, and I couldn't tell him anything. He was a know-it-all, <sighs> and uh, and then um, I had a song that I had written with Marty Fredrickson, and we had cut a gorgeous track uh, called "If God Could Talk," mm-hmm. and so you know we wanted to put some harmonies, you know, that Toddish kind of oh, sound yeah, on sure. it. Yeah, he just started giving me shit, and he started saying. Well, everybody knows that God can talk. It's if God would talk, not could talk. If he would, not if he could. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like, Todd, (laughs) it's 
coming from a coined phrase if these walls could talk right you're not yeah. going to get that if it's a, if you know if god would talk <laughs> like he's being just sort of insolent and stubborn and doesn't want to talk no everybody knows i said you know what god hasn't said a peep since that burning bush show me <laughs> show me where he's talked yeah since the burning bush uh-huh. and that was a very long time ago I think he might have forgotten how to talk. This is all filmed, right? Because oh, Meatloaf yeah. had the whole process filmed. Sure, yeah. And, um, oh my God, it was terrible. What was so, his response to that? Did he just stop that conversation? Or yeah, did he... you know, he left in a huff or uh-huh. something, you know, he yeah. was just insolent. And um, the other night, Rick Knowles invited me to the Todd Rundgren concert. And I said, I would not go see Todd Rundgren <laughs> if you paid me five million well maybe if you pay me five million dollars i'd go but there's no way he said but his music and i I love his music he's like a genius yeah he's influenced me so much right but i'm not gonna go there and see him up on stage for like two hours no way yeah so you've had your fill of todd in person yes exactly (laughs) but honestly you know a deep low bow to him for the mm-hmm. music that he's created. Yeah. I mean, he's truly a genius and, you know. And w- influenced the culture so greatly because without him, there would not be Bad Out of Hell. He's the only one who believed in it. Right. And, uh, and so many other things, too. If God would talk. <laughs> well, if God would talk, it'd make things a lot easier, right? But if God could talk is the point. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God would talk. I think the whole political landscape would be very different yeah, right now. I think so. Yeah, I think you might have a few things to say about it might certain be a people. few changes. Yeah, just a couple of little things. You'd be like, you guys like me? Listen, let me tell you something. You're, you're, you're after the wrong uh, candidate. You're out on the wrong horse here. It, you're in Woodstock. And how long is it until you move to New York City? Well, we got David Shaw, who was the drummer in Van Morrison's band, to record three songs with us. Mm-hmm. And... When those demos were finished, I mean, we even got this girl to play violin on it that had been Jack Benny's little girl on TV, the little that little foil, but, right? Uh-huh, sure. I don't know what happened to her. If she's out there, if she's find listening me, to this, yeah, find me. <laughs> and uh, she played on it. Everybody played for free because uh-huh. we were poor as hell. And Virgil and I, we were picking apples in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. It was one of the worst jobs. Yeah. You know? I mean, I could barely do it. And then they relegated us to the, you know, production line where the apples would go by and you'd like quickly pick out the bad ones. Uh-huh. It was like, I love Lucy in the chocolate <laughs> yeah. factory. Right. You know, <laughs> but that's what kept us going. And uh, my car didn't have heat mm-hmm. and the back windshield was also corroded and fell off. Right around that time, I turned 18 and I went to see Seymour Stein. Oh, yeah, the head of Sire Records. Right. And he had just started his company. Mm-hmm. This is 1972, 71, November of 1971. And we went and played our demo. He's very sweet and all that. Of course, you know, we weren't ready for prime time. Uh-huh. And so that's when my father came to New York and uh, told me he was my father. Wow. And said, okay, here you go. He's $250. Just drive back to Miami and we'll get you back in school. And Mm -hmm. I did everything he said. Mm -hmm. And when we were in Miami, we heard that there was going to be a big music business convention, the NARM convention. Mm -hmm. And we decided to go and impersonate John and Yoko (laughs) to get in. Yeah. 
So we dressed like John and Yoko and kept our heads down. And she wore these big Jackie O glasses and the black hair and black suit. And I was all in white with the beard and the yeah. split hair on the side. And we just kept our heads down. And everyone would say, John and Yoko, John and Yoko, it's John and Yoko. And so nobody stopped us. <laughs> so we just walked right in. And yeah. there was a table right near the front and had two empty seats. And it was a table away from our real target was Clive Davis. Oh, sure. Because yeah. he was the president of Columbia Records, mm-hmm. and he had signed Laura Nero, right. who was you know our ultimate sure. you know, artist. And one of your sons is named after her, right? Yes, N-Y-R-O, yeah. Nero. At the end of the show, we had had dinner, and you saw the show. Yeah. Uh, everybody stood up, we stood up, and Clive Davis stood up. We turned to him, and he looked at us and started laughing, because mm-hmm. I think he thought we were John and Yoko as well. Sure, and yeah. He thought, you know, oh, well, there's, you know, John and Yoko. Of course Yoko. they're here. And, you know, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and uh, he thought it was funny, and he took our demo. You know, he sent us a letter, a really nice handwritten letter mm-hmm. saying, you know, it's not really for me and all that. Yeah. I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> I mean, I have to admit, it was, uh-huh. you know you have to when you're at that stage not see that it's bad because you right. have to keep being propelled forward right right so we had made a folder and with, we did pictures with an amazing photographer we we were good at packaging yeah and our name nightchild was it's fantastic yeah i think i might go back to nightchild <laughs> that's like why not yeah it's good to have a couple different brands these days i think so i think so 40 years later in 2012 clive davis honors me with the Clive Davis uh, Legend and Songwriting Award. Yeah. And I was the fourth recipient, and he hands it to me. And it's like, Jesus, you know, you hand him a demo. <laughs> then 40 years later, <laughs> yeah. he hands you a prize. <laughs> what do you think about that? That's pretty good. That's the what you got to do with Clive Davis. It's a 40-year thing, but you a, do get it's the... It's a 40-year yeah. trek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting in those two stories about Clive Davis and Todd Rundgren. Clive was really nice when you first met him, and he had no reason to be other than he was just being nice. And Todd really had no reason to be so mean other than he was not really that well-adjusted, seemingly. Uh, Have you found that people's true nature holds true throughout the years in the business that you're in? I I don't really see that people really change who they are. Yeah. You know, I think some people could have made a lot of mistakes— and maybe had insecurities that they overcame mm-hmm. and became better, nicer people. But, you know, I have to say that one of the nicest people I've ever met, and I've never heard different from anybody else, is Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sweetest, nicest, most giving, nurturing, funny person I've ever met. Yeah. And I loved working with him. We wrote an album together called Trash and had a hit. Called it was Poison. a big comeback album. Sorry, I didn't exactly. mean to step on your, Yeah. Well, first of all, we sold close to four and a half million records, and that's more than any of the other albums he had ever made. Right. And or ever since. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think you know, I delivered for him. Yeah, you definitely did. Last year, I got honored with the ASCAP Founders Award, mm-hmm. and they surprised me and had Alice Cooper open my sequence singing Poison. <laughs> That's great. I had absolutely no clue that he was even there. Yeah. Then Paul Stanley introduced me. and it, Now, Paul Stanley plays a large role in your career as a songwriter, right? Absolutely. Um, there was a young band from New Jersey that had been struggling with their second album and opened for Kiss 
in Europe and their name was Bon Jovi. Mm. And um, Paul, you know, who's kind of very nurturing himself and almost like a professor or something, uh-huh. uh, said, you know, you should write with Desmond. Yeah. And he gave him my number and I went over to New Jersey and I went to Richie Sambora's family home where he mm-hmm. grew up. He was still living with his parents. Yeah. And I walk in a little wooden house in, in a cul-de-sac and behind was a ginormous marsh, a gray foreboding marsh that went on as far as the eye could see. And at the very end of it was this giant oil refinery. It looked like Emerald City. Uh-huh. It's like the most toxic place <laughs> to live ever. Yeah. And I walk in and Richie's there and I walk past you know his bedroom, uh, which was on the way to the kitchen on the left. And I look in and there was a Farrah Fawcett poster, you know, mm-hmm. in the red bathing suit, oh, sure. Kiss posters, yeah. you know, Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, full of pictures and posters. It looks like typical a teenage boy's room. Sure. I walk into the kitchen and John Bon Jovi's on the wall phone, the avocado green <laughs> wall phone, you know, and he kind of looks up and, you know, kind of like looks at me sideways and kind of nods and, you know, goes on talking, I'm sure, to his manager at the mm-hmm. time, Doc McGee, right. you know, kind of plotting and planning and all this. <laughs> so then Richie leads me all the way down to the basement mm-hmm. and it was like, that was like Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> and down there, there was this old Formica table that had been retired down there and they had put a little keyboard on it mm-hmm. and there was some Amson buzzing mm-hmm. and you could see some transoms, but they were like full of mud, like oh, you sure. couldn't really see out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's where the laundry was and, mm-hmm. you know, clothes <laughs> everywhere. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, he kind of left me down there and then, you know, came down w- with John and mm-hmm. then we started. I came prepared with a title in my back pocket. Titles are big with you, right? That's right. And I like titles that have irony. Mm-hmm. So I had come up with You Give Love a Bad Name. Mm-hmm. And I actually had it written in a little piece of paper in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, I presented it, and John's face lit up, and I got my first view of the million-dollar smile. (laughs) Well, I should say billion-dollar smile. Sure, right, actually, yeah. By now. (laughs) He lit up, and, you know, right away, he had a song on his previous album called Shot Through the Heart. Mm -hmm. And so he's not one to waste a good hook. Right. So uh, he just immediately said, Shot Through the Heart, and you to blame, because darling, you give love a bad name. And we said, You give love a bad name together. Yeah. And that was our first, you know, high five and, you know, triple fist Mm -hmm. uh, bump. And um, I started playing this kind of uh, bass line on the keyboard that was kind of a a combination of. these dreams are made of this by the oh, Eurythmics. Yeah, yeah. And Billie Jean. Because Billie Jean is like, dun, 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 You know, the Eurythmics one is very similar also. Yeah. And so, but I came up with a, a different little variation. Dun, 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 I mean, almost exactly the same. And so Rich, <laughs> Rich was looking at me. He said, man, that, that's like, you know, Michael Jackson or something. I said, play it on guitar. Mm-hmm. And play it like chugs, mute it and play it like chugs. Yeah. So he did it, chung 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 chung, and John's face lit up, and <laughs> it was like magic. Yeah, and music history was made yeah. right there in that second. And you went on to write the twenty thirty 
songs with Bon Jovi? Is that I close to accurate? You know, or? Well, who's counting? <laughs> um, More than two? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there was two that really counted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, well, Some this, of the other ones, Bad Medicine, right? Yes, and, and uh, Living on a Prayer. Yeah, that, that, that one that yeah, people might have heard of, I think. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, we I, I had like four songs on Slippery When Wet. Yeah. And we wrote extra songs. Like there was a, a song we wrote called We All Sleep Alone. Mm. And John just thought it was too kind of uh feminine mm-hmm. you know kind of like slow or kind of sensitive sure and i mean we had to beg him to cut uh living on a prayer really because that wasn't his vision he wanted to be a real rocker okay sure so that song was telling a kind of sentimental story yeah about this couple and all this kind of stuff and literally Richie and i got on our hands and knees <laughs> literally on the floor and yeah like just pleading please cut it at least yeah. let's cut it let's hear it right and you know the minute they did you know just everyone knew that right and, and you're actually sort of the tommy right in the song yeah because i mean i'm sure that richie brought his story to the table john brought his story to the table my story was i was thinking back on the time that i lived with maria mm-hmm. and maria, maria so just Ma- for maria vidal so a lot of listeners might know the body rock theme which is a good example of one of her solo singles and a member of rouge that's right maria and i lived in this tiny little apartment i was writing songs and she was working as a waitress at a place called once upon a stove she was a mm-hmm. singing waitress and all the waiters and waitresses had fake stage names mm-hmm. when they worked there because yeah. they present them you know do like kind of was kind of like funny half funny and uh, her stage name was gina velvet Mm -hmm. so people started calling her gina that's where gina came from and when i first suggested it i said johnny and gina because i love alliteration Mm -hmm. and then john said i can't sing johnny that's my name oh right right and i said (laughs) okay tommy which was a sound alike yeah and that's how tommy and gina were born yeah Another bit of that song, which is very personal to you, is the, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not, right? At the time, I was living in a New Age commune, and the leader of it, who was kind of very, um, he, was, he was really, it was a cult. Yeah. I didn't even realize it, you know, because I had been in all kinds of guru, you know, religions and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And this one was very different. It was kind of, uh, I don't know, like, more like, a mind control thing or uh-huh. more about being in the truth, telling the truth. And then there was these like, like confrontations, you mm-hmm. know, it was called Aquanasa, mm-hmm. which was some kind of native American name for home. Mm-hmm. And the leader was from Texas and he was our voice teacher. He was only like two or three years older than us, uh-huh. but he seemed like he was, you know, it's like we were following Jared Leto or something. <laughs> no joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guy like had a look, you know, like yeah. he was like the reincarnation of Christ. Sure. These blue eyes that could like look right through you. Mm-hmm. And he would always say, it doesn't make a difference. You know, it doesn't make a difference. Like truth is what it is. It doesn't make a difference. You can't change what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And so that it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. Kind of like, you surrender to truth, right? Sure. His philosophy made it into that song. Maybe that was the reason, ultimately, that I joined that cult, just to get that line. Sure. Well, because you have to look at experiences like that, too, to see what the positives are that come out of it. Because you could look at, back at it and regret it, or, and I don't know, maybe you do. 
One of the things about that time was a lot of my friends were dying of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And it was a terrible Holocaust that happened to, yeah. the, to the GLBT community. And by uh, joining this small group, really, it was only about 15 people. Uh, we were creating our own kind of hopeful future. Yeah. And we were out of the city. Okay. It was a kind of like a relief. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys in the group were gay anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure about the the girls that were there, but there we weren't having relationships with each other because mm-hmm. that was kind of forbidden. Okay, because uh, coupling was not, you know, considered in truth. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's also easier for people I, to control people when they do exactly that, right? because yeah. you you don't have two teaming up against the one so. He had a way of, you know, making you feel fantastic and then a few days later you were just, you know, dog meat again. Sure. And the up and down wanting to please him, you know, went over, I was there like four years. It's a long time for that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it was very traumatic. You know, when I, I went to Russia with a group of songwriters in a program called Music Speaks Louder Than Words, mm-hmm. the fall of 1988, I went there and saw a whole society that was living like how I was. Which was how? Um, what well, was it, what know, were the like, conditions like? Well, I mean, we lived in a beautiful home and everything. I mean, I had a tiny captain's bed with two drawers, and that's where all my belongings were. Wow. And then just like a little slice of the closet mm-hmm. for my dress shirts. Yeah. And everything was a minimum. We lived a Spartan life. Everything was very controlled, like how you speak, how you look, what you think, mm-hmm. and... Then I saw a whole society that was like that, yeah, very rigid, sure, and I, and it broke the spell, and mm-hmm. I realized that's not who I am, right? It's like this is suppressing my spirit, yeah, not making me become more spiritual, <laughs> right? I'm becoming less spiritual. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming less myself, right? I'm just a robot, just wanting to fit in, yeah, wanting family, sure. And that's really what was missing from my life because I had left home so early and I didn't really have a great childhood and, and all that. And so I just snapped out of it and I, and I went back and, you know, I said, you know, I need to some time away and all Mm -hmm. that. And he tore me to shreds saying I was the most selfish person in the world and that I should leave that night. So I gathered my little things and I just, you know took my car and drove away Yeah, without saying goodbye to anybody or anything. Mm-hmm. It was very, very painful. And I think he thought I'd come back crawling on my knees, but I'd had one of the biggest hits in the world <laughs> to, to back me up. <laughs> now, which one? Because you've had Living so many of them. Yeah, no, okay. but yeah. all of my songs were adding up and I had given every penny that came in to them. Oh, wow. I mean, I spent a million dollars staying in. Yeah. That was what was paying for The beautiful house that you barely had a full room in. Exactly. When I left, you know, they tried to come after me, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, threatening me. And so I got this very tough, you know, mob lawyer in New York to say, you know, really? Well, guess what? We're going to sue you for brainwashing, subterfuge, fraud, uh, this, like a whole litany of things. <laughs> yeah. You better back off. Yeah. And so they did, and he immediately sold the mansion, mm-hmm. took the money, bought himself a boat. Everyone was just sent to go to hell. Wow. And um, he eventually died of AIDS himself. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. A-, a good thing that they were all left 
sort of discarded really because oh without... i mean we're still very close like a lot of us we yeah. stay in touch and a lot of us you know didn't recover from the from it i mean are still not right i can imagine from, from the damage of of it the lesson is don't follow cult leaders that's right yeah and no also... matter who they are <laughs> that's very true uh... <laughs> because in the end you'll be left completely yeah. in the dust the most malignant narcissists can do that in interpersonal relationships as well. Mm -hmm. And people sometimes don't even know. I'm sure it was like the frog in the frying pan for you. This thing that sounded good. There was this community of people. Also with the overall idea that we were going to be the ones that survived and recreated yeah. society in uh -huh. a way that we didn't have conflicts because we had worked on ourselves and right. we were living in truth and all these very high ideals, mm -hmm. and we were sacrificing everything to save humanity. Sure. So when you have that in your mind, mm -hmm. then you're capable of doing all kinds of misdeeds. Let's just look at World War II. Right. I think it's a human flaw. Mm -hmm. You know, there'll be one king bee, and then everybody starts hovering around them, and they just do what they say, and into the trash heap of history. <laughs> right. It makes it easier sometimes, even if there's the conditions are bad, but there's something to focus on, a, a, a mission. That's right, because it, once you're working with people together, and it's, it's not like we were having, we were having fun laughing, yeah. a lot of jokes and fantastic dinners and mm -hmm. music. And, yeah. you know, it was like a beautiful communal lifestyle. Right. I really enjoyed my time there. I mean, especially the jobs I was given. Mm -hmm. Because I'd work four days in New York City, then I'd go there and work hard labor for three days. But it was pruning trees, cultivating an organic garden, doing the raised beds, doing the mulch. I was in charge of the fireplaces, and mm -hmm. we moved to Virginia, see? Oh, okay. And, and we lived in a Jeffersonian mansion mm -hmm. uh, called Monticola. Mm -hmm. It was one of these like satellite houses that coming off of Monticello, Monticola. Mm -hmm. It was on the James River. And it was stunning. You felt the history. And then it was like, yes, and then we're here with a purpose. I look back on a three-week period where I decided not to work. And I was just working, 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 and, you yeah. know, doing chores, painting walls, putting, you know. And I have to say that was one of the happiest times in my life. Because I didn't have to think about anything. True. I right. had no responsibilities. I had no spouse, no children, mm -hmm. nothing but this fun group of people. And a focus. And a focus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I really realized when, I, when the spell broke is the, the true fear and emptiness that I had inside of myself, uh, abandonment mm -hmm. and all of these things. And I was so lucky. I was walking down the street in New York and I, I looked in, inside this restaurant called Coastal. Mm -hmm. It was on Amsterdam and like 81st Street. Mm -hmm. And it was a corner restaurant. And there was this 
very handsome young man with it looked like legends of the fall uh-huh. you know with the blonde hair to his Cascading shoulders down yeah. yeah to his shoulders <laughs> and these blue eyes like piercing blue eyes yeah and i just look at, at him and and you know i said i want one of those <laughs> so i came Who back to see about this uh, so yeah. i came back with my assistant we tried to go there to eat, but it was like 1030 at night. And uh-huh. he came to the door and said, sorry, we're closed. And, you know, I looked at him and I said, okay. So we went back the next night, but this time <laughs> it was at nine. Yeah. And he sat us down and he started eating his dinner, like at a nearby table. I said, Michael, and Michael Anthony was my assistant. I said, tell him to come and sit with us. And so he did. So then they were talking and, you know, Michael was chatting him up and mm-hmm. I was just like terrified because I hadn't had a relationship in so long, right. right? I said, get his number, get his number. So I had Michael call him the next day and mm-hmm. ask him out on a date mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that was Curtis, my husband. Wow. And, and how long was that after, when, after the spell broke and you're back living in New York full time? That was about three months later or wow. something maybe it was all this neediness or whatever. It just felt like love. Yeah. And well, it still feels like love, right? I yeah, mean, it's a long course. time since. Yeah, of course. But I mean, I was like, I have to be with this person. Yeah. I mean, it was like love at first sight, right? Sure. But it was more than that. It was like a soul feeling Yeah. because I was just coming to life again. Right. And so and, also your uh, receptors and your antenna in that regard are on high alert because you've sort of closed it off for a while or you've been exactly. Yeah. First of all, I was so lucky because this guy was like so pure and so innocent and so good and talented and fun and funny and sexy and had everything. I don't know how I want him over because he's so, he's like so much better than me. Better than you. I mean, like, you know, that's the silly <laughs> nice thing. Handsomer. He's like, you know, a better person, you know, not complicated, you know. <laughs> well, but complication <laughs> isn't necessarily a bad thing, but uh, I think I, I, I get what you're saying, but the saying someone's better than you, it's uh, I think a he's tricky. better than me. That's he's sweet. Better than that's me. sweet, I guess. Yeah. I'm lucky that, that he I'm likes sure he'd me. say the same thing about you, though. Maybe not so much now. <laughs> it's been 30 years. <laughs> we just had our 30th anniversary from the first date. Well, congratulations. And so from that first date, then, you know, very soon we were living together. I moved, we moved to California together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my first uh, California thing. And Well, what was that like? What was your first California thing like? Well, we lived in West Hollywood and then I decided, you know, let's make a home. And so we bought a home in Santa Monica Mm -hmm. and it was called Casa Paloma. And it was a former Soviet embassy, uh, consulate, sorry, consulate. So it had very high ceilings and it was, had like very beautiful paintings on the ceiling, the kind of Russian style and all that. Uh And we restored it and it was, it was magnificent. But after the Northridge earthquake, we said, no, we can't stay here. I mean, it scared me to death. It, a lot of people had that feeling, right? Because what year was that? I roughly? mean, you Is feel it... so vulnerable yeah. when that the, the ground is shaking out from under you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, wow. And the roar that you hear. Yeah. I don't even know what that roar is, but it feels like evil. Yeah. And you've never heard it and before. Since no, and it's, some, uh, and yeah. it's, like a, it's like your stomach just squeezes and it, it was panic. Yeah. And I said, okay, you know what? Let's go. Uh So we sold the house and we moved to Miami Beach. Mm -hmm. And we bought this gorgeous mansion, another Spanish mansion Mm -hmm. that was Spanish Deco 
on the water. It was very inexpensive. I mean, it was like fantastic because it, you know, Miami Beach still hadn't exploded. Yeah. I've got my mom a house just around the corner because it was always her dream to live in a mansion on Miami Beach. So mm -hmm. I bought her one. Yeah. And then uh, we bought another little house and we had three studios there. And then before I knew it, I had a staff of 12 people <laughs> and I bought the house across the street from the, from, uh, that one was called Four Palms. Yeah. And that's where our executive offices were in mm -hmm. my formal office. Mm -hmm. I was living like Scarface there <laughs> for like, you know, a long time. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I met Ricky Martin. And Ricky was a Latin artist looking to cross over. And when I got to Miami, I started getting back to my Cuban roots and mm -hmm. started taking salsa lessons and going to Latin clubs and... Um, decided that there needed to be a Latin sound that was combining, you know, what I had learned doing stadium music for Bon Jovi Kiss and Aerosmith, Aerosmith and, yeah. and translating that into Latin sound. Right. And thus we came up with the World Cup theme of 1998, the Cup of Life, which is what he sang on the Grammys. Mm -hmm. It was number one in 23 countries. Yeah like instantly right that's where i met draco rosa and he co-wrote that with me and mm -hmm. he was he was in menudo originally oh, okay and yeah. then he was still in ricky's world and started producing with casey porter because for those who don't know ricky martin was a member of menudo as well yes yes and they were both in menudo but draco was like the cute one then he got he kind of aged out and they brought in ricky right because menudo for those who don't know they had a it was an age limit, right? Right. So uh, rotating members all the time. And what was the age limit? Like 18 or something like that? Oh, I don't even know it's that old. You oh, know? Yeah, it could be 16. They, they yeah. were like 16. And yeah. then, but you know, Ricky came in, I think he was like 10, 11 years old. And he was like the little Michael Jackson of, of right. that. Yeah. They were a boy band. Massive. 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 Yeah. So then Draco started becoming a very serious artist. Mm -hmm. And he was in a band called Maggie's Dream. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, Lenny Kravitz had been a lead singer in Maggie's Dream. Oh, okay. And so it was very, um, you know, bohemian mm -hmm. and cool, alternative, had, you know, all these cool sounds. And then he made his own solo record called Vagabundo. Mm -hmm. And that record was just like, you know, it was a triumph. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, uh, he was doing these songs for Ricky. Ricky wasn't really writing with us because mm -hmm. he was on tour. Sure. So we were making the music, and then Ricky would come and sing on the songs. Yeah. And that's how it was for Live in La Vida Loca. So you co-wrote Live in La Vida Loca and She Bangs. Shake Your Bon Bon. All the major hits of his at the time, right? Right. And uh, Nobody Wants to Be Lonely. Yeah. Uh, with the duet with Christina Aguilera. Mm -hmm. So we had a good run. Yeah. You know, it was two albums. I think we sold over 30 million records mm -hmm. in three years. And what was it called at the time, the Latin Explosion? There was a Latin name. Music Explosion. Latin Music Explosion, so that's right. So the, the, the first Latin Music Explosion, I guess, was in the 50s when Xavier Cugat mm -hmm. and um, Desyar Naz mm -hmm. um, brought Latin music with Edie Gourmet. They, yeah. they brought Latin music to the United States and yeah. to the international market. Sure. Then the next Latin Music Explosion was Gloria Stefan. Mm -hmm. And she reinvented pop music with a latin sound right 
And so then 15 years had passed, and then Draco and, and I and Ricky, we reignited it. Right. And to such an extent that they immediately followed it with Mark Anthony, mm-hmm. J-Lo, and on a separate rail came uh, from Universal, because we this was the Sony side, came Enrique Iglesias, mm-hmm. and um, Clive Davis had Santana. Oh, with right. smooth, yeah, that's right. So all of a sudden, from all directions came this Latin music explosion. Yeah, that you know, now twenty years later, we had a, we have a new one with Despacito. Mm, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, one of the fantastic uh, things about it is that when my mother passed away in 2012, I decided to uh, try to do something to honor her her life because she was a very hardworking. A person and she was a songwriter and she was you know had cuts Mm -hmm. she was signed to peer music she was a she was a bmi writer her Mm -hmm. entire life Mm -hmm. but she didn't have massive success you know like like how she wanted you know there were a lot of reasons why women were always put down and marginalized and um even the songs that she did get cut we never saw a penny from them Uh, sure you know, it was a very corrupt system. Yeah. Dodgy publishing people, et cetera. All of it. All of it. Not yeah. not peer, but you know, like the the record companies sure. and all of that. Yeah. But I was already inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which I was so happy in two thousand eight that my mother got to come to it. Mm-hmm. And I introduced her from the stage and you know, she stood up and, you know, she turned towards the audience. It was like she was being inducted. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, her pride must have been just like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when she passed away in 2012, um, I got together, I, I suggested it to uh, Hal David, um, uh, who was the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And for those listening who aren't, aren't familiar with Hal David, well, one of the collaborators with Burt Backrack and wrote, all those fantastic Dion yeah, Warwick and he, songs. And, and he yeah. had been the chairman of ASCAP many years, and he became the chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He was already in his early 90s. Yeah. And very much in shape. I mean, he looked mm-hmm. fantastic. In fact, there's a movie about him oh, wow. called um, uh, What the World Needs Now. Oh, wow. I have to see Lyri- that. The subtitled Lyrics by Hal David. Oh, right. Yeah. And I just saw a screening of it. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. I really, I'm looking forward yeah, to that. His then. collaboration with Bert and... Yeah. And it was three of them because Dionne Warwick was their star. Exactly. And yeah. what she brought to the songs, it was magic. Yeah. And so Hal David, you know, who I like worshiped, um, he kind of gave the blessing and he said, well, you should get together with Rudy Perez because Rudy had been asking them for 16 years. How about a Latin songwriters hall of fame? Uh-huh. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I got with Rudy and Linda Moran, the, the president um, uh, said, yeah, Go for it. Mm-hmm. Within six months, we had our first gala. Oh, wow. And, That's a pretty uh, good uh, And it was a line. disaster. <laughs> it was a four and a half uh, long, like, oh my God, it would, took like for forever. Uh-huh. The party didn't even start till midnight <laughs> after the show. Now we're going into our seventh year, and it's called La Musa Awards, named mm-hmm. after, you know, my mom, La Musa. Hi, I'm Piazzadora, and I have one question for you. Are you gay? Because I just always like to know that ahead of time. I want to go back to when you were a new artist, and I want to find out what things were like in New York for you uh, before you got signed to Capitol. Because I, I think I read something about you having these brunches 
Maria Vidal and I were living in a tiny little flat, a little railroad flat. It just We slept in the living room in a fold-out couch that we had found in a trash heap <laughs> and recovered it yeah. in like fabric that we, that we bought. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looked bad. <laughs> but, uh, it was all very clean and neat, but sure. it was like that couch was <laughs> terrible and you wake up every day with a backache. But <laughs> Maria and I used to have brunches on Sunday. We'd have all of our friends, you know, like Mark Shaman and uh, Zor- people Zora. I know his work from uh, Hairspray, yes, and uh, many many other shows. Zora Rasmussen, I mean uh, Tracy Berg, I mean like s- some of them were comedians, and they try out their material, mm-hmm. and we'd have like twenty five people all stuffed into this room, and everyone would get up and sing a song, yeah. and Mark would play, and we'd make quiche and salad and Uh and have a you know jug of white wine Mm -hmm. now almost all the ingredients were shoplifted (laughs) from the apple food store that was on the corner yeah and we had like a whole way of doing it we'd load up but you know we'd have like this like this kind of uh travel bag and we put it in the cart mm-hmm. and then we'd go up and down the aisles and fill fill it with like a bunch of stuff yeah. and paper towels and all that. And then we'd be dropping the cheese and the ham and all the like really expensive stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then we'd zip it and then we'd go back and put the stuff away and then we'd buy one yogurt. <laughs> with the travel bag slung over your shoulder. Yeah. 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 Just popping I, in to get this. Yeah. And so then, you know, people would show up and it would be like, this fantastic very chic lunch <laughs> right that, that we were that so we sophisticated were and, but yeah. you know uh i think noel coward said there are only two kinds of people on earth you're either a host or you're a guest mm-hmm. and guests are notoriously you know parasitic <laughs> and they live off the hosts and the hosts are egomaniacs that have to control everything <laughs> so i guess i fall into that c- category because i much prefer throwing a party than going to one. Oh, okay sure because then everything's exactly my way. The way you like it. Yeah. The way I like it. And everybody has a great time. Mm-hmm. I love creating environments. So sure. you feel like you're in something that was from, you know, Paris in the 20s yeah. or something like that. A whole mood. A whole mood. Now, have you always been like that in the control aspect of things? Is it more on the fun side of things or do you find that you struggle with control sometimes? Other people struggle with my control. <laughs> I don't struggle with it. That's good. It's good. Do you have, uh, you're in a good spot with your control. This year I had the honor and the dream job of a lifetime to work with Barbara Streisand. Wow. And um, she's the most extraordinary person. I Who mean, also has been known to uh, be kind of fond of control. Well, it's worth it because her homes on this incredible piece of property on a cliff in in Malibu mm-hmm. is so extraordinary. The artwork, just everything about it, how it was built, every detail is fantastic. Yeah, and you can just feel her everywhere. Uh-huh. You know her her high taste and mm-hmm. her intellect mm-hmm. um, is extraordinary. And of course, you know she created a genre of music that only one person is in that's right yeah yeah and, <laughs> yeah. and also only one person can use that font <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly she decided to make a record about how she was feeling about what was going on in the world mm-hmm. she's very you know politically minded right? politically yeah. minded she really is patriotic mm-hmm. talk about an american patriot she cares deeply about america and about our freedom 
she made this record instead of going out and giving speeches she decided to do it in music mm-hmm. and she made an album called walls <laughs> irony right yeah right i had been in love with her since i first saw her in a movie called funny girl mm-hmm. there was a scene where she's standing on a tugboat and she's singing don't rain on my parade and um that's when she turns everything around mm-hmm. She passes in front of the Statue of Liberty, and there's this image of her, and she's holding these flowers up in the air like it's the torch, and then the Statue of Liberty is behind her. Mm-hmm. That double image of those two strong, heroic women yeah. uh, burned in my mind. So 50 years later, I, I had this vision of her, and I decided to write a song called Lady Liberty. And it's on the record, and, and it's a masterpiece, really. I mean... I solely wrote it, and I co-produced it with her, and she was great. And she's so prepared. Mm-hmm. And she comes in, she sings two or three takes, and it's done. Wow. I did put it half step higher than she was usually singing. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. And she was, like, cursing me. <laughs> she says, you're a taskmaster. I'm, I don't think I can sing this key. I said, you can do it. I know yeah. you can do it. You yeah. know, because in this higher key, she was challenged. And all of a sudden, she starts singing these soaring high notes. It was like, that's it. That's the sound. You know, like she sang in People. Sure. Or like, uh, Papa, Can You Hear Me? Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And she did it. Yeah. It was like goosebumps. She says, you're a taskmaster. You're a slave driver. (laughs) So when I went to say goodbye to her, she gave me this big hug. And she looked up at me and she said, you're a pain in the ass. And I commend you. <laughs> so I'm going to have that carved on my tombstone. That's a good one, I think. You know, yeah. with her quote. Mm-hmm. You know? Attributed to, of course. Attributed of course, to. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to Paul Stanley because he saw you and Rouge playing. As Paul Stanley says it, uh, he had been walking in the village in New-, in New York City, in Greenwich Village, and he saw posters of us all over. Yeah, And he kept seeing multiple different posters of us playing little clubs. So he was intrigued by my look and also these gorgeous girls around me. You guys had this great glam look. As he would say, uh, there was something androgynous, you mm-hmm. know, about the way I looked and that he thought was intriguing. So he came to see us perform at a place called Tracks mm-hmm. on 72nd Street. And it was like this underground club. He hung out with us and we made friends. And then he said, hey, why don't we try writing a song together? I didn't know anything about Kiss. I thought it was for like little kids Mm -hmm. and stuff. The first song we wrote was I Was Made For Loving You. Their biggest hit, right? Their biggest single hit. That's right. And with that song, I was kind of bringing in my sound into it because I was really, you know, into mechanical drums and Mm -hmm. kind of disco sounds. It's the very beginning of drum machines. Sure. And putting power guitars mm-hmm. onto dance beats. Yeah. It's one of my favorite combinations, incidentally. Yeah. And I think we were the first to do it. Yeah. And it just exploded all over the world. And Gene hated it. I mean, he just <laughs> thought it was the cheesiest, the worst. Like uh, we, I had brought, you know, Kiss down to the lowest level. And to this day, it's the biggest international hit that Kiss has ever mm-hmm. had. Yeah. It's one of those songs in the show that is spectacular. Oh, there was one time where they made an album called The Elder with, oh, yeah. Bob, with Bob Ezrin. Yeah. And they decided, in, instead of being like Bon Jovi and Aerosmith using Desmond Child, you know, co-writing the songs, they said, 
We don't need Desmond Child. In fact, we're putting guards on the door to keep Desmond Child out of the studio. Gene kept saying that, I mean, in hundreds of interviews. And I finally called Paul up. I said, why are you picking on your ally? Yeah. Instead of like somebody who hates you, you know? (laughs) Right. And he said, oh, that's just Gene. You know, Gene. I said, no, it really hurts my feelings. Yeah. You know, and I feel it's like very ungrateful, you know, for, you know, what I've contributed to the success of Kiss. Yeah. And, and, you know, he said, no, don't pay any attention, all this. So I went out and when I came back on the answering machine, there was this. Hi, it's Gene. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Clicked. <laughs> <laughs> he hangs up. Three words or four words. Hi, it's Gene. Sorry. Click. An economy of speech. <laughs> but then um, I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel downstairs in the little cafe that yeah. I, I, I used to love going to. Mm-hmm. Well, now right, now, you now can't, we can't. Yeah, you can't go there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was there having breakfast. There was no one there. And I was kind of looking at... Uh, I think I was reading the New York Times Mm -hmm. and suddenly I feel a funny feeling like something was kind of creepy was touching, you know, my, my ass. And, uh, you know, it was like, what is this? And I looked and I I couldn't, I didn't see anything. He he had crawled into the restaurant, Gene, (laughs) under my stool and had reached over and started squeezing my ass. (laughs) Then he sat next to me and we talked and, yeah. you know, we made friends and he was very helpful, mm-hmm. had suggested uh, an attorney. Mm. Uh, uh, his name is Bob Lang, who had been working with him on on his series called uh, Family Jewels. Oh, right. Then introduced me to Leslie Greif, and, who was the producer of that, and we're working together on stuff. And like so many good things great. came out of Gene's introduction. I went to see him with my son's last month mm-hmm. they came through with their farewell tour and it was the most spectacular kiss tour ever backstage my sons are standing there and they had their friends with them and um paul came to say hello to us and this is before the show and all his, in full makeup and yeah. everything you know eight feet tall yeah. and um he you know he gave me this big hug and he looked at me and he said you know i'm here because of you that's beautiful. This tour, though, the farewell tour, takes the cake. I don't think I've ever seen a more entertaining show ever. Mm-hmm. And Paul, he looks incredible. And his his body, his arms, his like, it's like he just, you know, like Benjamin Buttons. He looks better <laughs> than ever and singing better than ever. And his book is really a terrifically inspiring story. We talked about Aerosmith briefly. You were responsible for a major rock band in the mid-80s having a song basically about sexual fluidity. Because Dude Looks Like a Lady is uh, about what? Well, it, it happened like this. I was forced on Aerosmith by their A&R guy, legendary mm. John Claudner. Yeah. And um, they did not want to write with me, and they didn't want to write with any outside writers because they never had, and they didn't think that they needed it. Mm-hmm. And they, there was also this kind of purity. Yeah that they were kind of holding on to. But they agreed. And so they flew me to Boston. Limo's waiting for me and takes me to this warehouse where they had set up a huge stage setup, hundreds of guitars. I yeah. mean, rows upon rows, like an army of guitars, like a regiment of yeah. guitars. 
every color, every sparkle, uh, zebra, leopard, you know, black, <laughs> right. white, silver, gold, you know, every kind of guitar. Stephen comes and greets me and he said, hey, come over here. Um, come and listen to this. I want, I want to see what you think of this. They were playing this backwards guitar loop that went da-da, 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 da-da. And then uh, he says, what do you think of this? Cruising for the ladies, da-da, da-da, cruising for the ladies. <laughs> and then he like stood back and looked at me like with a big smile on his face. And I said, I think that's really bad. I think that's my first words to Aerosmith. Perfect. <laughs> that's really bad. I mean, even Van Halen wouldn't have that on the B side of their worst record. <laughs> I mean, it's so tired, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, like driving down Sunset Strip. Right, yeah. You know, cruising for the ladies. You can just see the, you know, like yeah, you can see the whole picture, the, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Van Halen video with the pink Cadillac, you know, convertible and yeah. babes everywhere. Sure. You know, Joe's just like, like looking at me with arms crossed, and then uh, Stephen, who's a people pleaser, uh-huh. he says, "Well." You know, kind of sheepishly, he said, when I first started singing that riff, I was singing, dude looks like a lady. And I said, what? Dude looks like a lady. And I said, that's incredible. Yeah. That's fantastic. And Joe said, yeah, but we don't know what that means. I said, okay, I know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I kind of hoodwinked them into this storyline. And so the reason he started singing Do Looks Like a Lady was because the band and the roadies had all gone to this bar on the shore. Yeah. Kind of like a suicide bar, like last drink before you kill yourself. <laughs> and at the end of the bar was this, you know, they saw this gorgeous platinum mullet. Yeah. You know, with midriff and, you know, black nails and, you know, all this jewelry and, you know, looking very like, like curvy and mm-hmm. gorgeous. And they were like kind of drawing straws on who's going to go up and say hello. Mm-hmm. She's the only woman in the yeah. whole bar. And she turns around uh, on the stool and looks at them. And it's Vince Neil from <laughs> Motley Crue. Yeah, right. and, and then they were like, ooh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And that's where it was born. Yeah. So I, I hoodwinked them. And I took that storyline and I said, well, how about this story? You know, a dude walks into a bar, you know, cruised into a bar on the shore. Her picture graced the grime on the door. Yeah. They got into it. And that song broke them. You know, yeah, it, again, it, the comeback. It was just the like comeback song. Comeback, yeah. And uh, John Claudner was in the video with the long beard looking very kind of Duck Dynasty. <laughs> but it was like Jewish Duck do- Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Schmuck Dynasty. <laughs> and John Kaladner played a large role in your 80s career, yeah? Exactly, because he loved the songs I did with Bon Jovi. So he hired me uh, to produce Cher, right. who hadn't had a record in eight years. And everyone was thinking, you know, oh, she's just a Vegas act. She, mm-hmm. she, you know, she's washed up. She's like Joey Heatherton or something, yeah. right? Yeah. David Geffen adored her. Yeah. And uh, dated her briefly, right? He dated yeah, her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like like me, like we fall in love with women even though we're gay, whatever. <laughs> Some women yeah. are just irresistible. Yeah. Never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> right. And to get back to that really quickly, one of the great things about the lyric is that the guy discovers it's, it's a man and 
Okay, well, you know what? Yeah, he's still he into sticks this. sticks with it. Yeah. He says, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the great things because he doesn't run away. Right. He goes, well, you know what? I like what it looks like on the outside, so I'm into it. Yeah. And uh, that was a, a huge barrier to cross. Sure, certainly. And uh, they put it in Mrs. Doubtfire, and uh, in the scene, Mrs. Doubtfire is in the park and dancing with a broom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every like four or five year old kid in, in the world knows that song and sings it. Yeah. Knows the words. Exactly. And the, and the message gets yeah, in. The, never yeah. judge a book by its cover. Exactly. And right. it has a beautiful message. It does. Back to John Kalodner. Yeah. So one of John Kalodner's great gifts is looking at an artist who maybe isn't working with who they should be working with right now and then putting them with the person that's going to let them be the best version of themselves. I think John Kalodner is is a visionary yeah and he also has tremendous integrity i owe him so much and um a few years ago i saw him at le pen quotidien on melrose Uh and he was sitting outside and he was wearing one of his brightly colored hawaiian shirts and he was sitting there and i said oh my god there's john cladner and i just walked up to the table i leaned over and i looked at him he looked at me and i said thank you and i just walked away <laughs> no chit chat no just nothing. thank you yeah thank you mm-hmm. because i bet a lot of people don't say thank you to him i think that's true the kind of work that he did for artists like aerosmith white snake etc sometimes some performers egos would prefer to not imagine that other people had that kind of influence on that stuff i bet you must have dealt with that a little bit right as some of the acts that you've worked with try to downplay your contribution to things i think the critics did that to them because okay since the dylan days and the beatles and people started writing their own music it was a no-no to use outside writers or even do an outside song yeah and so there was a stigma Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know, when different bands would do their interviews and all of that, they wouldn't mention me until the interviewer brought it up. And then they kind of, oh, yeah, he's the song doctor. He like fixed a couple songs or he only wrote a couple of words. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story. Um, Steven Tyler put out an autobiography. Yeah. And Joe Perry put out one mm. co-written with David Ritz, the same person who's Uh, co-written my autobiography that'll be out next year oh great steven goes on for pages on end about how i came in and i looked like juan valdez you know and and that i had a mustache which i've never had like a mustache Uh uh-huh you know, like on its own. Right. Like right. not even in the 70s. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> Prime time of any to have one. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And uh, he made me sound like I was like Juan Valdez <laughs> in, a, in a donkey. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, he he came in here. He he wrote a couple words here and there. But, you know, the song had already been written, <laughs> you know. He mentions nothing about cruising for the ladies. Yes, right. He leaves nothing that part out. Nothing about me, like, arm-twisting them into the storyline. Yeah. And nothing about, you know, the alliteration that I brought to the song in the, in the lyrics. You know, her picture, Grace the Grime on the Door, which yeah. is pure Bob Crew, uh, who was one of my mentors. And Bob Crew, of course, wrote so many fabulous hits for the Four Seasons. Yeah, and wrote Lady Marmalade. Exactly, Voulez-vous yeah. coucher avec moi, c'est yeah. soir. 
And he was a big stickler for exact rhymes. Exact right? rhymes and inner uh, rhyming and alliteration. Okay. And and a contrast of opposites. That's who I learned everything from. I spent two years writing songs with him. I wrote thirty eight songs with him. And this is after you had the Desmond Child and Rouge albums yes. already. And I, he was my producer, but he really was my professor. Sure. And it was very strict songwriting, like Brill Building style. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, it's interesting, too. Uh, a lot of times people get a deal, they think they don't mm-hmm. have anything to learn. But you thought, you know what, maybe I could pick up a few things here. Oh, I was desperate. I was so lost. And I was looking for a father figure, too. So it worked out. And he was gay. And he, was, he w- only worked with me because I'm a Scorpio as well. Really? Yeah. And that's the only reason he worked with uh, Bob Gaudio. So for those who don't know, also a major player in the Four Seasons. Yes, was one of the singers, yeah. and he co-wrote all those songs with Bob, Yeah, and he was a Scorpio as well, so he taught me everything. So um, Stephen, um, you know, writes this, like, pages on the making of Dude Looks Like a Lady, I mean, diminishing me, like, entirely. <laughs> then Joe comes out with his book and says, I had come up with the title. <laughs> That, you know, and it's like, that wasn't true either. Yeah. I didn't come up with the title. Steven did. Yeah. You know, and it was like, it was so crazy. Yeah. So now I'm writing my autobiography where I'm going to set the record straight. And it's like, okay, who are you going to believe? Two rehab rejects (laughs) or me? (laughs) They might have had a little bit of foggy memories, right? Or the guy who uh, is very exact about things. A couple of years ago, Steven was making his country record. And he picked a song that was written by my artist, Levi Humman, mm-hmm. called Red, White, and You. Mm-hmm. So we were working, and then I, I was telling the story of Dude Looks Like a Lady. You know, he listened to my story, and he goes, oh, right. I think I like your story better than mine. <laughs> I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, you know, it's interesting. Earlier, you said that Stephen's a people pleaser, and uh, I'm curious if you have done a lot of therapy, because it sounds like you've quested for spiritual sustenance and connection with people throughout your life. In the documentary to the story of Roman and Nero, which tells the story of how you and your husband decided to have a child through surrogacy and ended up having twins, you talk in there a little bit about going to India, and that and Curtis mentions that the two of you have always sort of been interested in, in um, either becoming more spiritual or finding more spiritual things in life. That's right. Uh, I've always been a seeker. I mean, since I was fourteen years old, I was you know studying the Rosicrucian, you know, New Age this and yo- sure. yogi that, mm-hmm. and vegetarian this, and you know. Like, this is like the 60s. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was 14. So this is 1964. Mm-hmm. No, no, wait, 66. Okay. 67, yeah. you know, and I was wearing beads and, mm-hmm. you know, sandals and stuff. Right. So we only have a few more minutes, so I want to hit a couple other artists that you've uh, worked with. Joan Jett, of course, with I Hate Myself for Loving You. I got a call from Kenny Laguna, who is Joan Jett's manager and partner. And um, not romantic partner, but like their business partners. Yeah, yeah. And there's a new documentary on Joan Jett, which really shows that relationship. I mean, beautifully. they're they're fantastic. And um, she hadn't really had a pop hit since I Love Rock and Roll. And so I had been having all these hits with rockers. So he said, why don't you try writing a song with Joni? And she is such a beautiful woman. 
but like so masculine and boyish. Yeah. So I think I fell in love with the boy in her. Uh huh. And I was just mesmerized. She was like the female Elvis Presley, yeah. her lips and smile and her, you know, kind of bedroom eyes sure. and just everything about her stunning. I had, again, this title in my mind, the title that had contrasting opposites, I Hate Myself for Loving You. And she didn't want to sing a song with the word love in it again. Uh-huh. She says, and I don't sing love anymore. <laughs> and I said, no, but listen, just give this a chance. And so Kenny worked so hard to get that song promoted. He went to um, Morris Levy mm-hmm. and, you know, kissed his ring. And Morris you know, Levy, for those who don't know, uh, look him up because it's quite a fascinating story. Yeah, so he was, you know, controlled a lot of radio. Mm. And, um, he, you know, he, he loved Kenny because, um, you know, Kenny had been an old timer and he was in Jay and the Americans and, mm-hmm. you know. He, Didn't he write Yummy, 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 They Got Love in My Tummy? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to this day, it's like one of the most known songs. And for a long time, it was the theme for... First, there was Monday Night Football, then oh, okay. became Sunday Night Football. Right. I think Pink sang it, Faith uh-huh. Hill sang it, Carrie Underwood, I think, sang it. And, uh, you know, everybody sang, you know, that melody to lyrics that were written for the football. Right, right. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Everybody knows that song. And um, I'm so proud to have, you know, co written it with her. Yeah. In fact, when I went to make the record, I produced it, I played it the rough of it for John Bon Jovi. And he just looked at me and said, fuck you. (laughs) And he walked away. (laughs) I think that, that meant he liked it. Yeah. That sounds like, it sounds like, uh, yeah, it's a thumbs up from John. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Well, before we close things out, is there anything you'd like to add or anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to bring up? I'd love people to follow me on Instagram because I'm hooked on it. Yeah. I'm so on that Instagram. I don't even know how to open my Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> you don't need to open Facebook anymore. No, but I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but yeah. the Instagram, I'm That's hooked. That's the thing, yeah. I am hooked because late at night, I just keep going and going and going and looking at all sure. these things. I mean, and then you follow one person and you follow another one. Yeah. You can endless, it's endless. endless. It's, it's like endless. Yeah, it's like the YouTube wormholes. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm constantly putting stuff in. Yeah. So I'm at Desmond.child. I'm looking for true followers that will never leave me. <laughs> right. You I, mentioned I, the abandonment thing before. So look, it holds true. We have this thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and a look for my television special. It's on a program called The Kate. The Kate? K-A-T-E on PBS. Mm-hmm. Coming to a public television station near you. September 13th. It's a Friday. Friday, September 13th. My live album comes out oh congratulations wait and this is the from the 54 uh, four four below. below shows yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah I'm and then it's the 40th anniversary of our two desmond child and rouge albums and we're re-releasing them remastered oh, fabulous on bmg records and we're going to be dropping new music as desmond child oh, and rouge. wow and I'm going to be dropping new music as Desmond Child. I'm very excited as a Desmond Child fan. I'm really looking forward to this uh, and the flood first of new single, material. Yeah, you know how like you know like Zed has featuring and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Well, I actually am singing on my first single. I'm not going to tell the title yet. Okay, but uh, Alice Cooper is going to sing on it. That's fantastic. I can't wait. And we all know titles are a big thing to you. Without the title, mm-hmm. you don't start writing the song, right? That's right. But you know, I'm going to be 66 in October. 
And I think something clicked in me. It's like I had been a studio rat for so long and I just said, you know, I love singing. Yeah. And I don't care if, you know, I make a dime. I just love to get up and sing. So I'm going to be going around and singing with my show and I've gotten amazing reviews and uh, hopefully take it all around the world. And then I'll have my autobiography out. And I have a Broadway show I'm working on called oh, cool. Cuba Libre. Mm-hmm. And it's a true story of my family before and after the Cuban Revolution. And I'm working on a movie oh, wow. uh, about uh, the Lou Pearlman story. Ooh, wow. That's a, and so that's I'm, a deep story. And so I'm getting close to signing a deal with a Holly, big Hollywood uh, production house yeah. uh, to make it. And I've been working on it for a long time with my partner on that, Andreas Carlson. And we conceived this in 1998, so it's mm-hmm. been like over 20 years that we've yeah. been working on this idea. And the story just got better and better and better <laughs> and better. And Lou Perlman went to jail, and then he dies in jail. Right. And um, so uh, we're working on the scripted version of that story because there's a fantastic documentary mm-hmm. on YouTube out that Bass, uh, Lance Bass, Bass did. Yeah. 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 So I just love the fact that, you know, at this point in my life, I'm taken a little bit seriously. So I'm actually making deals and making things happen in all directions. And I'm not saying no to anything. Well, I'm looking forward to all of that. And Desmond, thank you so much for thank joining you. us.